that the key stakeholders that uh, cared about what was going on at Northern Trust, including our shareholders, understood that we knew what our commitment was to the environment, to social governance, to um, all kinds of issues around that. And so for the past last 10 years of my career, I was able to achieve that uh, in ways that were, were challenging, certainly, because so much of this, when we talk about the environmental impact of decisions that are being made, the social implications, how that ties to equity and inclusion, the governance processes of good corporations, what are the behaviors of those corporations? And for publicly traded companies, you know, it's people, planet, and profit. Cool. Now, let's go back to your childhood in Milwaukee. What did you want to be as a little girl? What, what, what were your daydreams? Yeah, so I grew up in Milwaukee, um, you know, in what they call then the inner city. Um, my family actually lived in public housing for a time. So as a little girl, I saw a lot of the things that that happened or, or saw this sense of how economics played a part in everything. And that for those of us who were considered perhaps less than or for those who would judge us based on our zip code. And we all know that, you know, your zip code does not have to define your destiny. You know, I've been blessed to travel the world. But when I saw those kinds of disparities, those inequities, uh, the racism, the, all of that, the sexism, the classism, I wanted to be a social worker. And I wanted to be a social worker because I saw social workers who were doing things that showed that they cared about people, that the pain that people were experiencing because of the stigmas that were associated with where they were or their economic standing or the the trauma that people experienced in communities like we see today right here in our beloved Chicago, the trauma that comes with that. Those were the individuals in my experience who were trying to address the issues, often the most underpaid, the, the least resourced, but they cared about it. And so that's what I wanted to be. Now, um, you know, man proposes and God disposes, as they say, but I also had um, lots of interest and talent in math and science. And so um, in my junior year of high school, I was introduced to En-ROADS. And for those who don't know, En-ROADS is, well, it's been around for several, over 30 some years now. And it was a program that was designed for uh, talented black and brown youth who were interested in careers in business and engineering. So because of my math aptitude, um, I got to meet with the folks at En-ROADS, um, was accepted into the program. You had to have certain grade point average, all of those kinds of things. Um, and I started out in the electrical engineering, which really worked for me because most people don't believe it when I say it, but I'm an introvert. And so for me, numbers and things, yeah, you know, I am um, what's called an ambivert. I do what is necessary because we have to be with people. Um, and the other part, and the reason why I'm so honored to be on this program um, is because I think the work of the Chicago West Community Music Center is critical. The other part of what was key to my life was music. Um, I started playing clarinet when I was 11 and being able to understand music. And, you know, if you can read music, there's mathematics in that. I always tell people that it's left brain, right brain. Uh, there's research that even suggests individuals who um, play music. When we think about how Alzheimer's or dementia affects the brain, um, music crosses the blood brain barrier. So the gift of music. So what I was able to do when I could play my clarinet, Clarence, learn a part, and keeping in mind, these are kind of individual pursuits. So I was able to do that. And so I had music. And then I had my church, which is where I became a Girl Scout uh, at the age of 10. But yeah, so my childhood, you know, had the different things that went on. And I just, my mom, you know, just really continued to love on us like that. But the community engaged this little Black girl who was shy, uh, who didn't talk a lot, who was self-effacing most of the time. 
but from that social worker came that engineer who then became a person who uh, went into finance. So you were a Girl Scout, as you just said, what attracted you to the organization? Why did you want to become a Girl Scout? So here's the, the thing about, to me, in terms of our communities, which is why so much of my uh, volunteer work and, and civic engagement has to do with how do we reach out to our youth, those that, that some don't see or those young people who just want to be seen and heard to acknowledge them. You know, I often say to young people, I see you. I see you, you matter. And so for me, it was a part of my whole church experience. I sang in our um, youth choir. Um, once again, music has always been a theme in my life. Um, and so I sang in our youth choir and our choir director, Gloria Wright, who uh, is my godmother and is just an amazing person. That helped me to find my voice. So I was able to sing, you know, tie the music together, learning to read music. I'm just appreciating. And we did a lot of, you know, black gospel music and the historical context of that. And so then they started a Girl Scout troop in our church, uh, in our church's basement. And Pearlene James, isn't it amazing how we remember the names of the people who have written on the tablet of our heart? So Mrs. Pearlene James was my first Girl Scout troop leader. And what she said to me, remember, I come in shy and quiet. I didn't want to say anything. Just, you know, just come in and do my thing. She said, Connie Lindsay, you matter. You are not what is the matter. And you're in this Girl Scout troop. Yeah, you're in this Girl Scout troop. And we're going to help you grow into whatever God's best is for you. Wow. Yeah. And you remember that today. To this day. To this day, I remember where I was, Clarence. I can still picture today because I was sitting there. The other girls, you know, they were doing what they do, and I was, you know, hoping somebody would give me a book so I could read and, you know, go through the program and kind of do it by myself. And her whole point was, you know, you matter, so your voice matters. So I'm not concerned about your address or who your parents are or what they are or are not. In this space, this sacred space that we call Girl Scouts, we see you. We see you. We see you. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. But then you grew up to become the president of the Girl Scouts of the USA. That had to be a full circle moment for you. My God. It's even more poignant. I um, when I joined Girl Scouts at 10, my mother couldn't afford to buy my Girl Scout uniform. Remember, I said we grew up, uh, lived in inner city Milwaukee. My mom worked jobs taking care of us. Um, there were six of us, four girls and two boys. And I remember wanting to join Girl Scouts. And um, at the time we would go downtown Milwaukee and, and shop or whatever, but you know, there were parts to that uniform and they cost money. And I never wanted to bother my mom by asking her for things that I just knew we could not afford. You know, um, it was always important to me to say, you know, she would always say, get your education, you know, you know, stay focused, but I didn't want to make her feel badly by asking her for something that would have been way outside our budget, quite frankly. Well, enter my cross Lutheran church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the group of mothers and women in that church who were loving on us black kids, they bought that uniform, Clarence. They bought the parts of that uniform. My beautiful, sweet mom uh, bought the beret that we used to wear, but they bought my uniform. And the day that I stood on the stage in 2005, October 5th, and accepted or joined the board and then in 2008 became national president. My mother lived long enough to see her daughter for whom she couldn't afford all the parts of that uniform become the national president of an, an organization today that has 2.5 million members. And um, we just reflected on that. So, you know, throughout my life, Clarence, the whole thing, the theme of gratitude of, you know, just this, 
I can only call it divine intervention, divine intervention. But yeah, that to me still today, I, you know, I get misty when I think about how blessed I am to have been able to do that. Blessed beyond measure. That is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but it, now, as a president of the Girl Scouts, you took them to the White House to meet President Obama. And oh my goodness. Teachers. That had to be exciting. So I, so you talk about these life-changing, life-shifting moments. And when um, President Obama was Senator Obama, you know, I got to know him then. And then, of course, you know, did work and donated to the campaign. But when he was elected, um, we, it's been tradition in Girl Scouts that the First Lady is the honorary president of Girl Scouts. And so, you know, the whole thought of having an African-American woman, First Lady, to be the honorary president of Girl Scouts of USA, that would have been enough for me. But to be able to reach out to the White House and, and Valerie Jarrett was working at the White House and knowing that we wanted to have the girls meet them, we didn't only go one time. I think I took girls, Girl Scouts to the White House at least four times. I served two terms. So I jokingly say, Clarence, you know, President Obama's term and mine as president of anything uh, were, were deeply aligned. But uh, so we took them several times and okay. each time, was even more of a blessing. One time he greeted us at the door and uh, just, you know, said hello to the girls. We got to meet Bo, uh, their dog. Uh, one other time we took a troop of Girl Scouts with special needs. Um, Girl Scouts, um, some of whom were, you know, um, in wheelchairs and so on. And just the grace and love that he showed to those girls. I look at those pictures today and it brings tears to my eyes. And the way the girls responded to them, certainly for those little girls who were black and brown who could see themselves. I had one little girl I remember was hysterical, Clarence. She said to Mrs. Obama, the first lady, it's so good to meet you, your highness. <laughs> just overcome with the yes. magnitude. Yes. <laughs> I kind of felt that way myself, but then I yeah. had a cool factor because they knew me. And so it was, you know, hey, how are you doing? And so the girls then, and what I'd say to them is, you can be anything you want to be. And we're going to love on you enough that you develop that confidence, that you feel that you can do that. So that's the part of the you matter. So yeah, going to the White House, um, being able to have that connection with the Obamas and all of that. And uh, even now I, I serve as um, a co-chair of the um, Inclusion Council for the Obama Presidential Center. So that is a connection uh, that goes on. But those Girl Scouts are still today, you know, of course, work with girls and just I'm so grateful to the Obamas for the way they opened up, opened that White House to us uh, in ways that were just amazing. I can't believe it. I, I'm just, I'm just like, wow. I pinch myself sometimes too. Yeah. <laughs> still, yeah. still today, still today. Okay. Now you've enjoyed a history making career. You're the first black woman uh, vice president and Northern Trust. Did you realize that you were making history during the time that you were there? Did you realize this is gonna be historic? So I was the first black female executive vice president. Yeah. You know, those titles matter in banking. All right, all right, all um, right. Executive yeah. vice president. Um, I didn't approach anything as, you know, making herstory as I call it. I approached it as where can my gifts and talents take me and anything that I'm doing within this organization, how am I um, making it better for those who will come behind me? One of my tenets and beliefs as a leader is that we lift as we climb. And so uh, you would know, and I'm sure you know, other listeners will say, being the first of anything is not the easiest. And I often say that it just makes you a bigger target. We know that um, financial services is still very much uh, white male dominated. 
And so um, in being named the first black woman executive vice president, I knew that there were people who were looking at me making observations or even assumptions perhaps about how I got to be at that level. But one of the things that you know, I'm very clear about, Clarence, I always say that you know, I live with a level of internal equipoise. So I don't get too excited when people are saying I'm great and I don't get too sad when people are saying I'm not. It's that equanimity that allows me to have clarity around who I am why I am where I am, and it ties, and it's all connected to my faith, that God made me, and he doesn't make junk, but I also have the responsibility to make your life better based on what I've been given. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you. I really am. You are the first of so many things. Uh, Spirit of Achievement Award from Loretto Hospital on the uh, west side, and they also named the Cancer Resource Center after you. How did that feel? How did that moment feel? Oh, that was amazing. So um, for those of you some folks who know me well know that um, my husband, John Blackburn, was diagnosed in 2005, actually the same year I joined the Girl Scouts board, with multiple myeloma, which is an incurable but treatable blood cancer that affects African-Americans twice as much as any other race of people. And so when John was diagnosed, I immediately, um, I jokingly say, my sister say, Connie's not a doctor, she plays one on TV. But I knew the importance of research. I also found in doing that research that African-Americans and people of color are less likely to be involved or know about clinical trials or the different ways, you know, this whole notion of health equity and the inequities and disparity that exist as a result of that. So in doing the research, um, and I'd known about Loretto Hospital and they do fundraisers and do their fundraisers and they asked if they could honor me. And I said, well, sure, you know, I'm not one who chases awards or things like that. But I said, here's something that matters to me. And I know in the community where Loretto Hospital is located, there are people who are diagnosed with cancer. We know that black women, as when they are diagnosed with breast cancer, at similar rates to white women, but we have worse outcomes. We tend to die more. And so all of that passion bottled up in me, as well as, you know, moving through this journey with John, it was, what can I do? Let's look at having a cancer center. And the plaque on the wall said, you know, a place of hope and healing and health. And that is what um, my vision for that was. And, you know, can you get breast cancer screening? All of that was there for people who needed it most. Wow. Wow. Going back, who inspired you? Yeah, I've said it before, and I, you know, I'll be real, but my mom was my inspiration. My mother, who, you know, did so much with so little, uh, who for most of my childhood, um, worked, but she was always so clear. She was just a person who was a pragmatist. She um, was not real ebullient in terms of, you know, how she spoke about how she loved us, but man, I know she loved us. And um, before her passing, we, you know, we'd always talk about that, just the love. And so it was my mother who inspired me because she was resilient. Some of the challenges that she faced both as a little girl and then as a woman growing up, raising her children after she and my dad separated, um, it was her resilience not without trauma, not without me knowing, and you know, us talking both you know, after I got older about some of the pain that she had to endure, but she never gave up. You know, I'd ask her, I'd say, mom, you know, what keeps you going? And she said, my children, you know, I live for my children. I wanna make sure that you have a better life. And so everything that I did, Clarence, you know, I'd often say, I wanna make my mom smile. I wanna make my mom smile. I wanna make sure that she knows that everything she poured into me and to us, None of it went went to waste at all, at all. 
and my sisters joke now and say um, that, you know, I'm like mom because there's this pragmatic side of me where it's, like I said, I'm talking about the equanimity. You know, let's not get too worked up over anything. Certainly there are intense moments where we need to really, really focus and do whatever. But, you know, there's an African proverb that says, anger is the wind that blows out the candle of the mind. So that equanimity serves me, equanimity serves me well and has served me well in corporate when um, there were times when I could have, you know, gone a different direction, just to, to do that. I channel my mom in those ways. Wow. Now, how did your education at the University of Wisconsin, how did that help prepare you for what you're doing today, right now? Sure, I was the first person in my family to attend college and the first person to graduate of all my siblings. And um, it prepared me in ways, I think, certainly there is the you know, we need to have the technical stuff. So I graduated with a degree in finance. So I needed to, to know those things. But I think for the most part, it prepared me in navigating large systems. You know, there were over 20,000 students. I went to UW-Milwaukee at that school. And so it prepared me in navigating large systems, having the inroads experience, which really broadened us, uh, those of us who were fortunate enough to be in that program, because we learned simple things like, you know, a girl from the hood learning how to sit down at a very complicated table setting, which fork, which knife. Which glassware do you use? We were taught those things so that we, when we went into interviews or all of that, we knew what we needed to do. We were taught how to give presentations. So going through the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee with that inroads experience, my summers were not spent uh, in hobbies or things. It was in inroads intensive training. What did you need uh, extra help in if that was a class or something you wanted to do? So my, my four years of undergrad um, people joke, I was like, I didn't pledge a fraternity or sorority, I should say, you know, I, I was just really focused on getting through because of what I wanted to be able to do when I was done. And um, UW-Milwaukee prepared me for that. I commuted uh, to college, to commute back and forth to class because I worked. I worked full time because, you know, it was important for me to, to help do what I needed to do. Yeah, I just, I just got busy and got real abundantly clear. I was not probably the most fun during that time, um, but I certainly you know, was clear about where I needed to be. But I was also blessed to have folks who cared enough about me to continue to pour into me. Um, and it just uh, manifested as a love of reading, a love of education, uh, all of those kinds of things. So it was, it was um, an interesting experience. I wasn't totally immersed in college life, quite frankly, because I was working full time, you know, taking a full load of credits and saying, I need to move forward so I can start this career, so I can make the economic decisions that I need to make for my life to help support my mom, to do the things I wanna do in the community. So yeah, I was, I was that tunnel vision person. Wow. Now you also had an experience at Harvard Business School. You were involved with a program up there. What was that about? How did that help secure your position at the top of, the, of your profession? So as all of us know, in order to be good at anything, it's continuous learning, right? So we don't ever stop learning. I mean, we do podcasts or we do whatever it is we do. I still do it today. And that was an executive um, program in corporate social responsibility. It was a program with global um, participants. So I was able to meet people from all parts of the world and looking at what is corporate social responsibility. Today, we refer to it more as ESG, environmental, social, and governance practices, which includes investment portfolios. How do organizations or individuals create portfolios that comport with sound environmental practices, social issues, whether that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all other manners and the ways that we treat people in governance, how are corporations running themselves? So that was an executive program an intense 
you know, six week program where you're there and you're learning and, you know, you come through and having that certification because we all know it's important to continue to evolve as our work and the world evolves and to continue to have that education and learn. So that was, that was, that was fun. You're committed to mentoring. Do you find time to mentor young, young folks nowadays or not really? I said, I'm rewired, not retired. Oh, I, um, I, I, will, I will always mentor. I will always mentor um, for anyone. And I, and I look at it this way. Um, you know, if you look at the etymology of the word mentor, it's trusted advisor. If you look at your Greek, mytho Greek mythology, right? That the whole story of Telemachus and how that happened. So trusted advisor, but I look at it from three contexts, the coach, the mentor, and the sponsor. A coach talks at you. Think about the coach on the football team. A mentor talks to you. How do you get this done? A sponsor talks about you. And so often in corporate America, we don't have sponsors as women of color, uh, as black people. It is, it is a challenge for us to get that sponsorship because that mentor is gonna tell you how to do things or, or help you critical. And yes, I mentor lots of people. I get requests, but I'm real clear about that mentoring relationship. The first of that is, you know, why do you want me to be your mentor? If you want me to be your mentor because you say, oh, I wanna be like you. The first thing I'll say to you, be yourself, everyone else is taken. What are the skills or things that I can help coach you through to help you become more of you? Because a really you know, bad version of you is far better than you trying to be me. So what can I coach you to greater goodness or greater uh, whatever it is you're aspiring to be? So yes, mentoring, still do that. All people, you know, it's, it's, it's irrespective of race or gender or, or ethnicity, but certainly mentoring for me is critical. To whom much is given, much is required. All right, now, I really enjoyed your podcast on race, uncomfortable conversations about race. Will you continue that via podcast? Well, let's just declare it to be so. Let's do that. Let's do <laughs> I, um, yes. as, as I look at the projects, Clarence, in rewirement for me, there are a lot of them. And I said I took uh, the month of January as a time of discernment to say, you know, the world is, is yours, Connie. You no longer have a nine to five, as it were, which it was more like a six to midnight. But what are the things that I'd want to do? And certainly being able to have conversations like this. And as we continue to live in what I call this liminal space, the space between no longer and not yet, as it relates to race relations, as it relates to all the inequities that we see in our society, conversation is good. And in those conversations, when I talk about being uncomfortable, my DE and I work, I'd always say to people, you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable because we're going to talk about things that most folks are not talking about on a regular basis. The courage, conviction, and commitment to call a thing a thing, as I say. Let's be respectful. Let's assume positive intent, but let's call a thing a thing. If we're looking at data and we know that that data doesn't comport with the kind of inclusion that you are articulating in your business, we need to call it. And we need to figure out ways to address it. So I am certain there will be more conversations. I look forward to those conversations and any way that I can help elevate and advance uh, more actionable items around this DEI discussion. Cool. Now, this is Women's History Month. How would you like us to celebrate Women's History Month? Mm -hmm. um, I think what you're doing is critical, certainly talking to women and hearing from women. You know, women's history. And I'd, I'd also like to say, let's focus on uh, certainly black women and women of color in history because our stories tend, tend not to be told. And if they're told, they're only told in the context of the limited knowledge that people have. Um, it's also said that until the lion, um, uh, until the hunter, until the lion has an historian, the hunter will always be the winner. 
in that relationship. So for Women's History Month, let us look for those women that might not be obvious to the world. Give them space to tell their stories. Let us honor our mothers and our grandmothers and our sisters. And for us as women to have a collective where we are supporting each other that I, as your sister friend, can tell a great story about you, that I'm gonna make room for you, that it is not um, a contest of who has more or who has less. How do I increase the impact of what I have by connecting with another woman so that we can make better change in the world? How can we do that? Tell the stories. And, and it doesn't have to be famous people, as it were. I don't consider myself a famous person. I am a servant leader. My goodness, if somebody can hear this story, and believe and know that even I can achieve and move forward, then my purpose has been served. So let's celebrate and uplift women that aren't in the magazines or read about or on TV. Find a young woman and tell her that you're willing to mentor her. Be that role model that actually rolls. And equally as important, you know, love somebody. Love somebody in a way that is, you know, not romantic love, but that kind of agape love so that it's unconditional. And my gosh, I'll tell you, it can energize you. It can fuel your life. And it's just the best feeling in the world. You know, just hear you speak right now. You are such a giver. You're such a gift to the universe. My gosh. Is there anything that you have not done in terms of helping others? Because you've been doing it for a long time. Any groups that you're not involved with? Any causes? Any people? You know, you're so kind to say that. Thank you for saying that. Like I said, um, to whom much is given, much is required. In office, I don't give because I have so much. I give because I know what it feels like to have nothing. And the causes with which I associate myself, the things in which I invest are things that matter to me. You know, the economic empowerment and education of women and girls, the eradication of health inequities and disparities in um, cancer and other uh, diseases like that. Uh, thirdly is you know, around education overall, the courage that it takes for us to tell a history that includes everybody, not parts that make folks comfortable, but to tell the entirety of the history. Uh, that is very important to me. And I'm also um, clear enough to know that um, it's really looking at where I want to be and listening very carefully to what you know God or the universe is saying to me about where I need to be next. And it's getting out of my own way. None of this is done, Clarence, so that people will say, oh, look at Connie Lindsay. And I'd want you to say, look at the effect that she had because she was there. How was this situation better because I was in it? How have I helped somebody you know, to carry a burden a little bit better, that I spoke in a room perhaps where those who are not represented weren't there, but I was able to lift my voice uh, in support of them. It's critically important to me. Well, my last question, which you sort of hinted to, how would you like to be remembered? No, that's a funny question. I was talking the other day to uh, some folks and they were talking about um, legacy. And, you know, all of that now, I think our lives, you know, there's a Parker Palmer has a book uh, that he wrote called Let Your Life Speak. So for me, Clarence, I want my life to have spoken. I want the deeds that I've done, the words that I've said to live on long after I have transitioned, that my life has spoken and that it has been a blessing to someone else. Um, Booker T. Washington said, uh, I've learned success uh, is to be measured not so much by the position that one has achieved or reached in life, but by the obst obstacles he's overcome uh, while trying to succeed. So for me, I wanna be remembered that there were obstacles but I learned to be a really good athlete in getting through the hurdles, that the training that I got in what some would perceive as lack made me a marathon runner for joy. And so I want to be remembered 
for love, that kind of unconditional love. I am speechless. I am speechless. You're, you're good. You're great. Um, anything else that you would like to talk about while we got you here? Anything else in your well, mind today? I, you know, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. I hope that the people are listening. Um, and for Women's History Month, that women continue to thrive and grow. Um, we are, you know, in the midst of looking at um, the first African American woman on the Supreme Court. Wow. Let us continue to push and advocate for history breaking moments, taking good care of ourselves and taking time to rest because that is important as well and to renew. So um, wishing everybody joy, continued good health and the wisdom and knowledge as we continue to navigate the liminal space between no longer and night. Thank <laughs> you.